0: Philippi had this excellent distinction of being a church that partnered in the gospel. All right, so if you remember that from last week, what we talked about is how Paul, when he wrote this letter to them, he was excited to write to them because he didn't have a whole lot of things he had to correct. It wasn't like a letter fixing stuff. It wasn't because he had heard that the church was falling apart and he had to intervene. It wasn't anything like that. Instead, the church at Philippi was a a church that loved him Love the ministry that he was doing, and they were just concerned about his welfare. And so when he writes this letter back to them, he's saying, thank you. He's saying, I'm so glad to hear that you still care about me. I'm so glad to hear that you're growing and that you're healthy and that you're maturing as a church. And so the the entire kind of tone of the letter is one of joy, it's one of of peace and excitement that, that Paul writes here because they were his partner in the gospel. And we also talked about last week how this church had even financially helped support the the work that Paul had to do as he traveled in his missionary work throughout the empire. But especially the thing that, that really just warmed Paul's heart was that they were growing and maturing locally right where they were at in Philippi. So it seems that once this church in Philippi heard that Paul had been arrested and taken to Rome... It, it seems that they, they gathered some relief funds and then sent one of their trusted members of the church, a, a person by the name of Epaphroditus, we'll be introduced to him later in the letter. They, take, they tell Epaphroditus, hey, you're a good, good guy. We've gathered some funds. We want you to take this and go from there in Greece over to Italy into Rome to deliver this to Paul, to help take care of his needs, to whatever he might uh, run into there. All right, And so he goes and delivers the gift to them and gives Paul a report of what's going on back in Philippi. And, and their concern for him is probably what prompted Paul to even write this letter in the first place. And I'm glad that they expressed that concern so that we have this letter in our Bibles. And today we're going to pick up with Paul's response to the church and, and what they had, had questioned. All right, And so in verse 12 of Philippians chapter 1... It says this, he says, I want you to know, brothers, and that's that same word um, that we get Philadelphia from, um, and that's brothers and sisters, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ." And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. We won't go on any farther yet with that. All right, so Paul is in prison. He's, he's, he's jailed, all right? Now, it wasn't likely there in Rome, it wasn't the kind of a thing where he was like in a dungeon cell kind of a prison arrangement. It was actually more of a house arrest. And sometimes they would do that with non-violent criminals that they were dealing with. It was just, he was restricted. He he couldn't go wherever he wanted freely, but he wasn't in necessarily like a deep, dark dungeon kind of a prison, but he was still locked up. He was still, uh, he was still arrested this entire time. Now, I don't know what you picture when you think about jail time, (laughs) uh, but when I picture it, I don't, usually view it as this would be like a really positive, uplifting time. Okay, on most people's top five vacation destinations, it's not, you know, I could go to Greece, or I could go to New Zealand, or I could go to prison, right? That's not usually what they're thinking of, oh yeah, I just want to get away. Um, Maybe for some, but I don't think that's usually what he was, was what people would be feeling. But Paul seems to have this tone while he is arrested of Things are great. I want you guys to know things are going really well. In fact, it's turned out to be a really good situation. Now, you might ask a question, if you don't know the Bible very well, you might say, now why is it that Paul was even in jail? Why was he arrested? Well, it wasn't a DUI on his camel. (laughs) He didn't rob a falafel shop. (laughs) Uh, Or it wasn't that he wasn't paying his taxes to Caesar. All right, it was none of these things. The reason that Paul was arrested and the reason that he ended up in Rome is because of some kind of trumped-up charges of sedition. Now, sedition just means inciting a revolution um, or, 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 you know, a rebellion against Caesar. And what had happened, you can actually go back and, and study it in Acts chapter 21 through 28. It goes back to this incident that happened in Jerusalem, And there in in Acts 21, what we find is that Paul comes into the temple in Jerusalem. Paul was a Jew, as we've talked about before, and only Jews were allowed to go into certain parts of the temple. And Paul came in with a couple other people with him and came um, to to go through these religious rituals there in the temple. Well, earlier, some of the Jewish leaders had seen that Paul was with some Greeks, some non-Jews. And they assumed that Paul, wanting to cause problems, brought Greeks into the place that was only allowed for Jews. All right? That's not what happened. Actually, Paul, when he came into the temple, was with other Jews uh, performing the rites of this vow that he had taken. But because of that, they assumed that he was with Greeks, and so they stirred up the people. And so pretty soon, all the people are getting angry. How dare you bring in this into the temple? And it, it turned into this, like, riot that starts growing, 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 until ultimately... The Roman officials, the government, are like, what's going on? Jerusalem's in this uproar. We've got to do something about this. They send soldiers into the the, the temple area. They end up taking Paul, and the Jews are saying, he's causing all this and that, and they arrest him, okay? And the Jews, the, the Jewish leaders there, remember, this is the same group of people that had executed Jesus, But now, here's this new guy on the scene, Paul, who's doing all of this and causing up all this upheaval. And so they're like, we want to kill this guy too. And so what we're going to do is we're going to say, he's trying to overthrow Caesar. There's this Jewish man that's shown up here, and he's causing problems for us, and he wants to cause problems for everyone. Completely false. But this is the charges that were brought against him. So in this whole process... um, Paul ends up speaking with the Roman officials. The Roman officials find out about a plot to kill Saul, Paul. um, And so they end up, you know, whisking him out of town over to the coast, to Caesarea. Where he then ends up arrested for another, for two years, awaiting trial for these charges that happened in Jerusalem. Ends up, he kind of gets pushed to the side, pushed to the side, forgotten about. Two years later, there's a government change One official leaves, another official comes, and is like, why is this guy still here? What's going on? It's another opportunity for the Jews to try to kill Paul. So they set up an ambush for him and say, bring him back to Jerusalem, we'll try him here. Paul finds out about the ambush and says, no, don't send me back there, I appeal to Caesar. That's like saying, I'm taking my my court case up to the Supreme Court, all right? And when he does that, because he's a Roman citizen, that was a right of a Roman citizen, that they could be heard before Caesar, He appeals to Caesar, and so they say, you've appealed to Caesar, to Caesar you will go. And so then begins this arduous journey of getting from Israel and Caesarea all the way across the Mediterranean Sea to Rome. And that's what happens. But he's coming in custody as a prisoner of Rome. And so when he finally gets to Rome, that's what takes place. And for the next two years, he's in house arrest awaiting the trial that's going to happen there for him in Rome, all right? Now, here's the thing. Paul, if you remember his story, remember when he was Saul, he gets blinded, Jesus appears, speaks to him, and gives him this mission and says, you are going to go and you're going to spread the gospel to all these places, the Gentile world. You're going to plant churches. You're going to tell people about me. You're going to argue on my behalf, and you're going to do an incredible work to these Gentiles, All right, so he had a direct mission from God, but he sidelined in jail. Now, if that was you, how would you feel if that had just happened? Put yourself in those those shoes for a little bit or in those chains as it was. How would you feel? You're like, God Almighty appeared to me and gave me a task to do. And here I am now locked up. What is going on? What's happening here? Would you feel defeated, discouraged, like you had failed? That's not how Paul takes it. It doesn't sound like it from what we just read here in in Philippians. Instead, he was trusting God in all of it and he leaned into the opportunities as best he could. Now, I will say this about Paul. Yeah, he's an apostle. Yeah, he's Paul. Yeah, he's in the Bible. You expect him to respond really well when life gets hard. But let's also remember that he had been through a lot to get him to this place of faith. Here he is locked up in Rome. He's like, It's all good. God will do what God needs to do. I'm going to do what I need to do. I can handle this. And I'm going to write this letter of rejoicing from being locked up for four years at this point. Okay? In 2 Corinthians um, 11, there was was a, a group of people that had come into the church in Corinth, which was another church that Paul had planted. And they basically said, yeah, that Paul guy, he's okay, but we really have the, the truth. And we're really devoted. He's only kind of devoted. We're really devoted, and we can tell you this is how you're supposed to live your life. Um, it, it was kind of annoying for Paul that somebody would come in and do that, but it works out really well for us because Paul gives some biographical information explaining why he should be considered an apostle and why he did some, have some authority and credibility. And, and listen to it in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty one. 21 twenty-eight. He says, whatever anyone else dares to boast of, because that's what was happening. These people were coming in and bragging about how they were super apostles. He's like, really, you're a super apostle? Well, let me tell you a little bit about myself. But he apologizes for it. He says, I am speaking as a fool. I shouldn't have to do this. Shouldn't have to tell you all this, but I will. I also dare to boast of that. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I are they servants of Christ? Well, I'm a better one. I'm talking like a madman, but with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, often near death. 5 times I received at the hand of the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less 1. The reason that they did this whole 40 minus 1 thing is because they believe that you die at 40 lashes. And so they said, well, we just want to bring you to the point of death, but we don't actually want to kill you, so it'll be 39 instead of 40. That last hit would have killed you, but we're going to do that. Five times that happened to him. Can you imagine the scars on this guy's back? All right, and he goes on, and he says, three times I was beaten with rods. That can't sound good. Once I was stoned. He's not talking about getting high here, people. (laughs) This is where they circle a person and pick up rocks and throw them at them. Until they're unconscious, laid out, and then they pile rocks on top of them, leaving them for dead. All right? And that didn't kill him. He goes on, he says, Three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there's a daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Paul's the type that can say, I've been there, I've done that. And so when he turns up here in this prison, in this situation, what would maybe rattle us and make us feel like, oh, it's never going to work out now. Paul's like, yeah, I've gone through the rest of this. This is this isn't so bad. In fact, he's, he's at the spot where he's he's just saying, well, what what can happen here? What is the the opportunity that's here? Because he's been through it. But as the saying goes, when life gives you lemons, make lemonade, right? This is what Paul's doing. Because what he says here, and I want you to notice this word. This is the important word that we see um, here in, in verse 12. He says, the, through all of this, the gospel advanced. And that idea of advancing the gospel is what I want us to focus on today. And there's a key ingredient that we see displayed in Paul's life that's important for advancing the gospel. And that ingredient is hope. It's hope. Okay? Now, I want to ask you this. People have different natural personalities, right? We have, uh, some of you are into uh, the the youth group last night. Some of them were looking at... uh, personality profiles and, and looking at these different things and, and seeing how, you know, you take these little tests online and it tells you, hey, you're, you're bent this way. And this is kind of how you are, who you are, what your, your personality is. Well, one way of looking at that is just taking a very simple view of optimistic people that, that are, they're always kind of looking at the bright side of things. And then the far other end of that is the pessimistic person who's kind of very naturally a little more negative. And then a realist kind of falls somewhere in between the two, all right? What sort of perspective do you have on life? If if I just broke you into those three categories, could you clearly say, or could your significant others in life tell very clearly, oh, they're that, they're that, whatever. Where do you kind of fit in that? Now one of the ways that you can sort through that is how you handle setbacks. How would you be if you were in prison like Paul was? Would you still be optimistic? Well, I am in prison, but at least I'm not dead, you know? Or would you be the pessimist? Of course I'm in prison. I expected this. It was going to happen sometime, you know? Where, where do you find yourself? How do you handle those setbacks? But then the question that I follow up with is, and what kind of perspective on life are we supposed to have as Christians? Is there a way that, that we're, we're, we're called to live? Now, I will say this, before you jump to the conclusion that says, well, we should all be happy, joyful Christians all the time, and everything should be good, and everything is sunshines and butterflies. Before you say that, recognize that we find God's people through the Bible in all the categories, all right? Jonah, if you know the story of Jonah, if you were a little kid, Jonah and the whale. Jonah was a pessimist, full on You go through the story of that. The reason he ran away and ended up getting swallowed by the fish, the Bible tells us, is because he was like, if I go and do what God tells me to do and evangelize, they're going to get saved. This guy's a prophet of God. (laughs) So he's like, I don't want to do that. They don't deserve it. So he runs the opposite direction. And even when he's going through Nineveh, who he's called to serve, he's like, 40 days and you're all going to die. I mean, he was made for this job. He's a full-on pessimist. At the end, he even complains because they do get saved. And he says to God, I knew you were going to save all those lousy, rotten people. I mean, that's the kind of way that Jonah viewed the world. Full pessimist. As realists, I think John the Baptist is a good example of a realist. And we know John the Baptist was the one who came before Jesus and prepared the way for Jesus. But when John the Baptist got thrown in prison, he's the realist of saying, hold on, I did this whole baptism thing with Jesus, I've already told my disciples that he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, and I'm saying that he's the Messiah, and the Messiah is supposed to come and get people out of prison, and I'm in prison. Realistically, I'm right here, and I'm locked up in prison. So he sends his own disciples to Jesus to say, are you the one? or not, because in reality, I find myself in prison. What's going on? But then we have Paul here with, I think, this optimistic perspective of, hey, I know you guys heard that I was locked up in prison, and I know that you probably think it's pretty bad, but guess what? God's advancing the gospel, and it's going well, and things are good, and let me tell you how to be joyful and happy in your life. (laughs) That's what we get from Paul in this. Now, here's what I want you to notice about that. No matter what our natural tendency is, whether you would view yourself as the optimist or the pessimist or the realist, no matter what our natural tendency, we are all called to be people of hope. Hope is something that every Christian should have. Now, I don't know exactly what that looks like to be a hopeful pessimist, but we're all called to, to, to be people of hope. But here's the problem. If our hope is placed in the wrong things, we will quickly and regularly become hopeless. That's what happens with hope. We can lose hope. We can find ourselves hopeless. And one of the reasons that we do this is because we place our hope in the wrong things. And if we end up hopeless, we will miss out on the opportunities when they arise for the gospel to advance. I don't think the gospel would have advanced advanced as Paul's describing it if he was hopeless. When he got chained to these soldiers, he would have he could have just been I'm hopeless, this is over, I failed, I don't know what I have to just wait for an angel to bust me out of this place or something. I don't want to say anything about it, I don't want to do anything about it. I'm hopeless. But he didn't have his hope in his circumstances. He didn't have his hope in how he was feeling. He didn't have his hope in other people. His hope was somewhere else. When I hope in my own efforts and my own abilities, I get discouraged very quickly. I don't know if you're that way. But if our hope is only in ourselves and how hard we work and how hard we try and how we can raise ourselves up, we'll probably find ourselves hopeless pretty quick. Okay? Some of you superstar people, maybe you're fine and you just hope in yourself and you make it through. Not so with me. In fact, I've got a, a whole list of discouraging qualities that come to my mind when I start thinking about hope in myself. I wrote you a list. Are you ready? Here you go. Here's some, here's some of my problems, guys. Here's some ways you can pray for me. I'm not talented enough. I'm not bold enough. I don't speak well enough. I don't have the leadership abilities I need. I don't have enough knowledge, not enough courage, not enough money or time or unique vision. I don't have the right education or mentors. The list can go on and on. And by the way, this is the easiest part of this message for me to write out. It <laughs> comes really fast. I can come up with all kinds of reasons why I can't do what God calls me to do. And I know that you guys are the same way. You're like, I just, I'm supposed to be a partner in the gospel. I'm supposed to advance the kingdom of God. Are you kidding? Have you looked at my life? Do you know who I am? We can come up with those, those lists, but we're not called to try to have our hope in ourselves. If we're trying to hope in our own ability and our own power and our own strength, of course we're going to fall short of something like that. That's not what we're called to. Instead of getting caught up in what we don't have, We need to keep our hope on the things that we do have. We're asking the wrong question. uh, Hebrews 6, 18 to 20 says this. As we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope that's set before us. Not hope in ourselves, but hope before us. What is that? We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. A hope. That enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. Our hope is to be in God. Our hope is to be in Him. That's what it's talking about, the whole curtain thing. In the temple, there, there was a curtain that divided the holiest place, the Holy of Holies, from the rest of the temple complex. And that is where the Ark of the Covenant sat, that's where the presence of God was said to dwell. But what we find out in Scripture is we look at Jesus' life. The temple, uh, the curtain in that temple was torn in two when Jesus sacrificed himself, making a way for people now to come into that place. What do you find in that place? God. Our hope is in that. Our hope is in that we can now approach God. And when we talk about advancing the gospel, we're talking about joining in with the will of God. the the word translated advance means to cut forward. In military terms, it would be used for the advanced force, the first people that would be sent out into the field to move the line forward. That's what he's talking about, advancing the gospel, pushing the gospel forward, moving forward uh, with the work that God is doing. Now, I will tell you this, before you go and, Try to add that to your to-do list for this week. Okay, pastor said I'm supposed to advance the gospel this week. Write that thing down. Before you go and do that, we have to remember that the power doesn't come from us. Okay, it doesn't come from us. It's God's grace that includes us into the mission that he already is on in the world. We're on his side. And when we want to think about what we have is we're on the winning side. We have God in our corner when it comes to advancing the gospel. The pressure is off of you to go and make disciples. Does that sometimes, you hear the Great Commission, does it sometimes feel overwhelming? Like, ooh, I'm supposed to be the one that takes the light of Jesus into the world? No, just me. You guys are okay with that. All right, good. We'll keep doing it. (laughs) No, it, it can be overwhelming, but we're on his side. And what we're doing is we're offering ourselves to him to use for the work that he is focused on. Is God low on resources? No. Can he not empower us? Does he not have the power to empower us and lead us? Of course he can. Can't he replace our insufficiencies with his sufficiency? Yes. But I do know that sometimes it can feel like he's overlooked us. It's like, oh, he sees all the other Christians, but not me. I'm the one who got left out. And Paul could have felt that way when he first got arrested. But he had learned that human limitations are opportunities for God to move in ways we don't anticipate. I want to say that again. I want you to see that. Write this down if you're right taking notes. Human limitations are opportunities for God to move in ways that we don't anticipate. Little did Paul know that he would get to be chained to each member of the praetorian guard. That's what it's saying here. When he, when he talks about this, when he says um, you know, I, that uh, it's been known throughout the whole imperial guard, um, what that was, was is basically Caesar's secret service. Okay? And the way that they traditionally would, would deal with the house arrest that Paul was under is the guys in the secret service would take turns coming to this house that they had Paul in And they'd have a key to the chain and they'd take the the chain off of one guard's wrist and slap it onto the next guard's wrist. And they'd be on a 24-7 rotation. And so no matter what Paul had to do, whether he was gonna go eat breakfast or take a nap, whatever, he's chained to another one of these guards. Well, instead of saying, woe is me, I'm chained to a guard, what's Paul doing? (laughs) It's Paul. Paul. He's like, oh, I've got a captive audience. Hey, did you hear what I said about Jesus that time? Huh? Huh? And he's preaching the gospel to every member of the secret service. And he's he's doing this. And he's like, the whole Imperial Guard has heard the gospel at this point. All right, not only that, his case was being handled in Rome as an official prisoner. And like I said, this is like the Supreme Court of the Roman Empire. So the legal team... The, 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 the crack lawyers of, the, of Rome, the legal team of Rome, will spend two years studying the finer points of the Christian faith. Do you see why Paul is like, this is awesome? He's like, I, there's nothing I could have done to get here to Rome and talk to all these high level thinkers and influencers on the entire Roman Empire except for this. This is amazing. And so that's how, that's how Paul viewed it. That's how he saw it. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9 says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts. This is God speaking. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Nobody could have planned this. Nobody but God. And not only that, he tells us that these events encouraged the believers in Rome to share their faith with boldness. Why? Because they saw Paul doing it in Rome. They're like, he's talking to a Supreme Court justice about Jesus. And he's okay. I guess I can talk to my neighbor. (laughs) And that's what was happening. And that's what Paul says. He says, look, everybody's starting to share now. I will say this. It's helpful to have at least a friend or two that love the Lord more than you love the Lord. Um, It's uh, it's good to have a person who's really passionate about the good news and courageous enough to share it with others, because that kind of fire is contagious. It's good to find those people and also become those people. You get to watch the gospel advance. Well, let's move on here in verse 15. And he says, so, so this is happening. People are speaking the word. But he says in verse 15, some... Indeed, preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here in jail for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Here's the optimist coming out. Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that, I rejoice. Christ is proclaimed. That's his only goal. And so that goal is happening, even though it's happening in a way that was unexpected. So apparently what was happening was Christianity became the talk of the town. It went viral. Hashtag Jesus was trending. And Paul didn't care how it got out. He said, I don't care. I'm just thrilled that it's getting out. And whether they're talking about Jesus to try to slam me or not, they're still talking about Jesus. Jesus. And whether they're out there spreading the gospel in good ways or they're just complaining about it, buzz is happening. And they say, you know, even even bad publicity is still publicity. That's what's taking place. God made a way when it seemed there was no way. And that's why we have hope in him. Because that's what God does, even in the places that seem hopeless. And then in verse 18... We'll go back. He says, What then? And that every way, whether in pretense or truth, Christ is proclaimed in that, I rejoice. And then it goes on, and he says, And yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that's far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. So that in me, you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Now, as I said before, I think that the church in Philippi, they were were distraught over hearing that Paul was imprisoned. They were discouraged. They were concerned about him. They were bothered by the fact that this could potentially be, mean a death sentence for Paul. They knew this is serious stuff when he's, he's here in Rome. It's, it's a serious thing. But what does Paul, how does Paul assure them here? He says, look, as long as the gospel's being advanced, I've got joy and I've got hope. And he gives us two reasons here. Two reasons. He says it's the prayers, your prayers, the prayers of others and also the help of the Spirit. This is why I've got joy. And and as we go through Philippians, we're gonna see joy talked about a lot. And one of the places that we find an explanation of why he had joy is right here. And it's with these two things, prayer and the help of the Spirit. Now, when we talk about advancing the gospel, we have to understand that we advance the gospel together. And that's what is being described here with this prayer. One of the ways I told you last week that we can partner in the gospel is through prayer. It's the job of the church to be praying for each other. Have you ever got to a spot in your prayer time where you're like, I don't have anything else to pray for? Well, look around right now in this room. All these other faces, all these other people, you can add them to your prayer list. And guess what? That means you won't run out. We're not even a big church, but you won't run out. Right? Just praying for one another, praying for each other. It's important, and it's, it's the job of an authentic Christian community that we talk about all the time, to pray for each other. And I believe that the power of prayer is underestimated among us, and I include myself in that list. And think about this, too. The disciples were people of prayer. Those who walked with Jesus were people of prayer. The early church were people of prayer the generations of Christians afterward who have experienced God in powerful ways have been people of prayer. If that doesn't convince you, Jesus was a man of prayer. In fact, the Bible tells us he still is in prayer. Hebrews 7.25 says this. It says, Consequently, he, Jesus, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. And listen, listen, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Intercession is when you pray on behalf of someone else. And picture that. Jesus, we know where he's at, the right hand of the Father in heaven, right? Jesus is watching out of heaven, and he's thinking of ways that he can be praying for you and for me. And he's elbowing the Father. Hey, Dad, did you notice that one? I think they could use some of this. I, they, need a, they need a little help over here. Like, Father, ooh, right there. I've been praying for that one too. This is what's going on. Jesus is, is praying for his, his children. So prayer is one of the ways that we have hope in praying for one another and receiving prayer and giving prayer. And secondly, we see here, he says, and with the, the spirit. We not only do we advance the gospel together, but we advance the gospel with his help. Jesus referred to the Holy Spirit as the helper. He is for us and he is in us. Romans 8, 14 says, for all who are led by the spirit of God are the sons of God. John 14, 26, but the helper, this is Jesus speaking, the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send you in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. John 16, 13, he said, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. God has not left us alone to fend for ourselves. Don't get in your head when you hear I should advance the gospel that you're doing that on your own. It's not what you're called to. We have each other and we have him and that should bring us great joy and comfort. And it doesn't exclude us from bad things happening. We we all know that if you've been a Christian very long, like more than 5 minutes, something bad's probably happened to you because that's what happens that's life guys that's not christian or non-christian or anything else bad stuff happens in this life but as christians god says i'll be near you in it all i'll be with you in it all even to death your last breath on earth as a christian jesus will be with you his spirit will be with you even for that last moment of life and he'll be with you immediately um, in your new life and I don't think that God had spoken to Paul and told him that he would be spared even though that's what he says to the Philippians he says look I'm, I'm stuck here because one part of me says it would just be I might as well go ahead and die like let's just leave this earth behind because then I'll be with Christ that sounds really good to me but on the other hand, I also know that if I go, then I can't continue to help support you and encourage you and teach you and, and, and guide you and the other churches. So that's probably better. So because of that, when I look at the two things, I think I'll probably live through this. Maybe he was just an eternal optimist, and he's like, somehow I'm going to get out of this. I don't know. But that's the view that he had. And, and I want you to notice that his hope, though, wasn't just rooted in his logical deduction, his hope was directly connected to his relationship with Jesus. And it's here that we find the secret to hope. This This week I was, um, I went to get my hair cut and I was sitting in there waiting for my turn and the radio was on. And I've been studying this week about hope, thinking about hope. And then this um, uh, commercial com- came on the radio talking about Cal Hope. And and the, the thing is this government organization that they started to help provide like, mental health resources and encouragement and stuff like that for for the people that that are struggling because of the covid years right this pandemic and how it's taken a toll on people and so they they've started this organization to try to encourage people and and provide some resources for them i thought oh that's that's kind of cool and i so i pulled up the website and when looking at the website their little tagline that i thought was important was it's cal hope hope lives here now while I do think it's, it's good, and I'm glad that there are resources available for people and that all those things are good and, and, and great, um, true everlasting hope isn't found on a website. It's not found in a therapist's office. It's not found in all those kinds of And those are good things, and, and, and I'm glad that those things are available. But true hope, everlasting hope, is found in Jesus that's where hope really lives so if you are in need of hope use all those resources around you absolutely (laughs) but know that true hope is found in Jesus in Jesus alone and that's how Paul could speak to live as Christ to die as gain doesn't matter because my hope is in him the living God all right let's finish here and we're, we're almost done few more verses. Verses 27 to 30. And here's what he then says. So he's, he's thrown that out there to them. He says, it's all good. The gospel's advancing. I've got hope. I'm going to come back to you one day. Here's what he says. Verse 27, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, What Paul says here to the church back in Philippi, he says, look, I know you're concerned about me, but instead of worrying about me, refocus on advancing the gospel in your own life and right there where you are in Philippi. Now, even though victory is won, the power comes from God from above, we still get to have a role in all of this. So when I tell you that, hey, it's not in your own strength that you advance the gospel, that doesn't mean that you're completely cut out of the picture. No, we're actually called to partner in the gospel and to advance the gospel. He does use us, he does empower us, he does want us involved in this work. Jesus is the one who conquered death and secured our eternal salvation. But there are still battles to fight, and opposition will continue. But as we follow Jesus with our lives, we are advancing the gospel. And that's why he says there, make sure you're living life worthy of somebody who knows the gospel, that knows the good news, that knows Jesus. Make sure that your life is moving in that direction. And when we live our lives in a way that really does reflect the nature and character of Jesus, we're bringing light into dark places. We're advancing the gospel. Uh, Think about it. Like this. When we choose to be honest when our classmates cheat, we're advancing the gospel. When we choose to speak gently to our children instead of lashing out in anger, we're advancing the gospel. When we forgive those who have wronged us, we're advancing the gospel. When we, for, when we, we give instead of take, we're advancing the gospel. When we comfort the hurting, when we care for the wounded, we're advancing the gospel. We will still suffer in this life, but this life is not the end. So here's how we finish here today with a bit of a challenge. He describes these people in Philippi and this church in Philippi as people that are striving together, that are unified, that are doing this advance of the gospel together. And so I think that one of the challenges that we find in this passage is, as a church, can we be a church that lives like this? I don't know if it can happen in like the Capital C Church, the Church Universal, but can it at least happen among us locally at South Point in this little part of the church? Our unity as a church is so important and our ability to advance the gospel depends on it. It serves, really right now especially, as a counterpoint to all the political division that we see in the nation. Guys, if you haven't noticed, nobody seems to be on the same team. <laughs> Everybody's, I hate the other person. There, there's, there's not a lot of unity, but, but the church is supposed to be unified and together. It's a powerful contrast to the isolation that we see in our culture and society right now. And, and the animosity that's going on there. And the church is to give hope to a hopeless world. That's what we do together when we, we come together. And then even as individuals. As individuals, we're invited into something bigger than ourselves. This is what the call always is to every Christian. We're called to do this. And, and I want to ask you, is that an important part of your life? Advancing the gospel? Does it matter to you? Are you inspired when you think, wow, I am actually bringing light into dark places when I live life differently, when I'm talking to the people that I know and love, when I'm talking to the people I don't know and maybe don't love? All of those things matter. Does that that stir you? Is it important? Is it worth giving your life for? And if the answer is yes, that does matter then the goal of advancing the gospel becomes huge in our lives. It actually shapes the way we do everything. And if we don't, if we're like, nah, I don't think that really is that big of a deal. What I think happens is a lot of times is we settle for less. We settle for things like the American dream. And am I saying we settle for it? Yeah, that's exactly what I'm saying. It's like, wow, you got it. You got the house, you got the car, you got the retirement account, the 2.5 kids, whoo, That's it? Is that what you're settling for? Or whatever else might strike you? But God's calling us to more. And that's where we find our purpose and that's where we find our fulfillment. All right, let's pray together here. God, I do thank you for your word to your church this morning. And Lord, I pray that even though I used a lot of words and said a lot of stuff, I pray, God, that our hearts would be stirred and our hearts would be reminded of opportunity that we have to share in the advancement of the gospel and Lord I pray first that our lives would be radically changed by you and that we would be people that are full of hope people that are full of joy people that are full of love and kindness all those things God would be would be just over overflowing in our lives But, Lord, that we would not stop there, but then we would take that out into the world around us. Lord, I pray for opportunities for our church to do that very thing. I pray, Lord, for opportunities to reach out into our community, whether it be just happening to meet our neighbor and having a conversation with them, whether it be the way that we conduct ourselves at work or at school. I pray, Lord, that you would give people of South Point opportunities to share your good news and share your love to the world around us and through it Lord that your kingdom would be expanded not our church would be expanded but your kingdom would be expanded and that the the transforming power of your spirit would go throughout this community and throughout this world we love you and we thank you it's in Jesus name we pray amen